Hello and welcome to the 10 by 9 bonus podcast. I'm Paul Dorn and normally while I wouldn't appear on a bonus, I thought I'd better explain a little bit about today. This is called Sequel and it features two stories by the wonderful Donna Hunter. Now Donna came to us in 2019 with the first story. Some of you may have heard it before, but it is brilliant. Prepare for tears. And then her story was broadcast on local radio station by the BBC. And so her second story is about the fallout from that broadcast. So here we go. 10 by 9 bonus podcast with Donna Hunter and sequel. We first met in May 1989. My grandfather died two days before. The saying, where there's a birth, there's a death, rang true that day. My father refused to come to see my daughter when he dropped my mum and sister off at the maternity hospital. I felt that he blamed me for the loss of his father. My mother was present at the birth, insisting it was in my best interest that she was there. It didn't make sense, and I didn't want her there. At the funeral, I was told not to get out of the car, not to speak to anyone. It was enough to show my face. No one need ever know that I had just given birth. That's how the secret was born. My extended family were told I had returned from England. That's what they told in those days. They were told I had a cold and that it was thought unwise for me to leave the car and stand in mourning by the graveside. So I sat in the car with the tears rolling down my face. I was in part upset for the, the death of my grandfather and I was emotional, in an emotional state with the onset of my first recorded bout of depression. Family approached the car to welcome me back home. I wound the window down cautiously. My reddened eyes and nose, the only proof they needed that I had in fact got a cold and was feeling emotional over the loss of my grandfather. Poor you, they said, and walked away. I returned to the family home a week later, empty-handed, broken-hearted, and to a house still in mourning. I was comforted only by seeing my younger brother and sister, who I hadn't seen since I left for England some months previously, without so much as a goodbye. I had, in fact, been sent to live in a home for unmarried mothers just a few miles away. I'll not say much about my time there, only that it was spent saying morning prayers, afternoon prayers, evening prayers, and prayers in the middle of labour. Sweeping floors, knitting needles, plain biscuits, no TV, no comfort, no visits from parents, and no going out in case you were seen. My only comfort was my Walkman, in which I played James Brown, get on up, on repeat. I watched as my belly grew and stretch marks appeared on my once slim hips. I told my bump, I love you. The baby's father had left me for another girl when I was four months pregnant. He was annoyed that I couldn't pay his door tax at the local dance that night. It was to be my last night out. I walked over to the girl that he picked up, told her I was pregnant in case she didn't know what she was getting into. She said, I don't care. Well, I didn't see that coming. My fate was sealed. Not long after, I came home from a job to be told by my dad that him and mummy weren't going to support me and had to leave the house, but not to worry, as they had made arrangements. I was to go and live in a home from married mothers, where I'd be looked after until the birth and adoption. It was thought the best thing to do in my circumstances. I wasn't asked how I felt about it or 
if had any plans. They had made their minds up and that was that. There was housing for single mothers at the time, but I had no time to figure that out or even speak to anybody about it. I tried to phone and see a few friends, but my time had run out. It was time to go. According to my friends, I just vanished. The adoption was handled by the nuns at the home. Not long after my daughter was born, I travelled with one of them to the foster family who would be looking after my baby until the adoption was finalised. I dressed her in a tiny wee yellow cardigan that I had knit. I wasn't a good knitter. I felt sorry for her. But it was all I had to give her. Everything else was borrowed or second hand. The family smiled and looked kindly on me. They made tea and then it was time to leave without her. Fast forward to 2013. We were all gathered at my parents, finalising the plans for my dad's big birthday, when an almighty row erupted. It resulted in my mum blurting out the secret in front of my 10-year-old daughter sat next to me. There was momentary confusion, followed by disbelief, followed by shouting, yelling, doors slamming. I grabbed my daughter and left the house. We got in the car, drove off down the road in tears. Through my tears, my daughter asked, What did Nanny say? Do you have another daughter? Do I have a sister? Tell me, Mummy. Is it true? I pulled over and stopped the car. Despite not wanting to tell her like this, I told her everything. She said she felt sorry for me. Her compassion washed over me and I felt a strange sense of relief. Unburdened, you might say. Then she said a very strange thing. She said she'd always felt a piece of her heart was missing and that she knew she had a sister somewhere out there. How could she? When she was born, I was told about naming our guardian angels. Believing in them, I tried a bit of the old divine inspiration and came up with not one but two names, Helen and Helena. I kept getting these names. I decided I must have twin guardian angels. So I charged one with looking after the adopted daughter and the other, my youngest. Maybe she had had the company of her guardian angel all this time. My daughter pleaded with me to find her big sister. I thought she was a bit young, so I agreed that we would start the process when she was 12, two years later. I kept my word, and in late 2015, we began the search through the adoption agency and the national search records. I requested contact with her view, a view to a reunion, or failing that, some information on how she was doing. The adoption agency informed me that I would be placed on a waiting list for a social worker and it would take six months. In May 2016, I got a call. <clears throat> My daughter was almost 26. The agency explained that she had rang seeking information about me for an unrelated matter. When they informed her that I had made inquiries, she agreed to a reunion without hesitation. This was excellent news. However, it was followed by some sad news. Her mother had just passed away. My daughter requested that we correspond by letter initially. The letters were long, sometimes taking a week to write. It was clear we shared similar personality traits. We progressed to messaging on WhatsApp. We could now see each other. I was desperate to meet her. Up until the age of 16, her parents and the agency had facilitated the exchange of letters, photos and gifts between us. Her parents had told her about me from a young age, telling her she was special because she had two mummies and daddies. 
She kept my correspondence in the colourful trinket box I gifted to her when she was just five years old. She told me in a letter that she kept this by her bedside at all times, which meant I was always on her mind like she was on mine. In her pictures and drawings, her world appeared to be a happy place. But she had now outgrown her trinket box with all the new letters that she was receiving, and some were from her half-sister. On learning this, I bought her a new keepsake box, a big trunk. (laughs) Uh, It was made in the vintage style we shared a taste for. Inside this box, I placed a smaller one with the word love. Inside that, I placed the first photo taken of us together, alongside her pink hospital name tags and her original birth certificate, which I had kept for her. It was a beautiful moment to see my reflection in hers when I reached her the box and to once more hold her hands in mine. We have been reunited for just over two and a half years now. It is a welcome new chapter in all our lives. I'm grateful to her parents for giving her the love I would have given her. I am thankful to the friends who shared their adoption stories with me and supported me through my journey. I am mindful that not all of them shared the same experience as I. Each adoption brings its own unique story. I am thankful to my two daughters for their love, generosity of spirit and acceptance of me, without which I would not be standing here telling this story. My girls' names mean gift of God and my darling friend, and that is exactly what they are to me, a gift, a friend, and darling daughters until the end. There was never more a need for a cup of tea laced with brandy than the day my 10 benign story aired on national radio. The BBC head of programmes wanted me to give my parents a heads up about the story going out, as it involved them and could have been seen as libelous had I not informed them. With only days to go before the programme was due to be aired, I asked myself, how am I going to handle this difficult conversation? Saturday is traditionally my daddy's golfing day, which is good because the programme was due to go out on a Saturday at 10am when he's at golf. He wouldn't have to listen to it. In fact, I would have preferred neither of my parents to hear it. With no time to waste, I approached my dad first. Dad, do you know how I'm doing a wee bit of writing at the moment? Well, I skirted round the details, but he insisted on hearing every last detail. He shook his head, muttered under his breath, worried how he and my mum would be betrayed and how many people were going to hear our dirty laundry aired in public. He asked, why the BBC? Why do you even feel the need to air it at all? It's been 30 years. Well, Dad, the BBC heard my story at a storytelling event and wanted to broadcast it because they believed it would resonate with a lot of people who had a story similar to mine. They thought the raw and emotional story of an ordinary young, unmarried, unsupported teenage mother-to-be in the late 80s, faced with uncertainty and the reality of giving her child up for adoption was a powerful and hard-hitting one. People needed to hear it. 
I went on to tell him that I hoped it might encourage others to open up and talk about their own experience and perhaps find the strength and hope to be reunited with their child, like I was a few years earlier. I reassured, reassured him that there was absolutely no malice or ill intent towards him or my mum and that the story had a beautiful ending. I emphasised how important it was for me to tell it, as I experienced it, not how someone else recalled it. I was thinking of my mother. I couldn't find words to tell her, so I asked him to, hoping it would soften the blow. But with his track record in diplomacy, I wasn't sure he could deliver. He had an awful habit of muttering under his breath, in a passive-aggressive kind of way especially when it came to awkward conversations. Even if he did manage to tell her, it would probably turn out garbled, like a game of Chinese whispers. Hard as it was for him, he agreed it should be aired on one condition. He had more time to get his head around it and to tell my mum. So I went back to the BBC and requested the story be aired a week later. All was well. My dad could get to his guff on Saturday. We even joked that he might want to stay at home when the programme went out, pull up his front row seat and listen to the radio with a strong cup of tea in his hand, laced with brandy. I'd heard nothing from my mother all that week. Had my dad even told her? Had she fallen out with me? There was no comeback, none at all. That's odd, I thought. Can you imagine my panic when I rang my dad minutes before the programme went out, only to be told my mother had found out that morning? He said they were sitting cosily in the living room, along with my younger sister, ready to listen to it on the TV in full HD cinema surround sound, without a tea or a drink in their hands. Sweet Jesus. I hurried off the phone and frantically texted my sister, you better bait it up the stairs before World War Three breaks out. She texts back, oh, Lordy, Lordy, I'm on my way upstairs now. I sat at home biting my nails during the duration of the programme. I couldn't listen to it myself. I waited after the call. Nothing. Just radio silence. Then a text from my sister. Mum's gone out to get her head short. Dad's banging about the house here, shouting, sweet Jesus and God Almighty. Come and get me, sis. I need out of here pronto. I picked her up at the bottom of the street. We went on one of those long, mindless drives to nowhere with a drink on our minds. A nice cool pint to settle our nerves would be great. Only I was driving. I could always dump the car, get a taxi. We opted for coffee instead. A few hours later, I returned my sister to the family home. And feeling brave with her by my side, I decided to go in, face the music, whatever. I headed straight for the loo. When I came out, I saw my dad standing in the kitchen by the cooker. He had his back to us. The kitchen smelt like a Saturday fry. Toast popped up out of the toaster and the steam was flying out of the teapot. He didn't turn around. He probably wasn't expecting to see me come blazing in. Silence except for the sound of messy, man-sized sniffles, sighs, and then gulps amid the sound of the cooking. This was my big dad, sobbing his heart out 
I felt an urge to go to him, to hug him, but my feet wouldn't budge. I just stood there, biting my lip, mesmerised by his emotions. I'd never seen him so upset. When he turned around, his eyes were raw, red. He muttered something incomprehensible. His words were laden with heavy sobs. Then he broke the silence. Donna, that was very hard for me and your mummy to listen to. More full body sighs and sobs. Well, sometimes, Dad, the truth is hard to hear. He poured out three mugs of tea and reached me and my sister one along with a bacon and sausage sandwich. I had no appetite. My stomach was churning. I wondered where my mum was. Was she back? Was she upstairs? As I looked out into the hallway, I saw her feet approaching the front door. My heart was pounding in my head. I braced myself. She headed straight for the kitchen. Her lips were pushed in anger and she gave me that look before throwing herself down onto the chair. She didn't even take her coat off. My dad poured her a tea and sat it in front of her. I offered her my uneaten sausage and bacon butty. She just pushed it away, reached for her mug. No one spoke for a few seconds. It seemed much longer. We just drank our tea. Then all hell broke loose. Words bounced off the kitchen wall and over my head. Aided by my sister who found her voice and spoke up for me, I asked everyone to shut up and stop yelling for a second and just listen. I reminded my parents of the reason why I did this story. It marked the end of a particular sad chapter in our lives. And I'd hoped that now it had been told it would be the start of a new chapter. One of understanding, acceptance, and that much needed acknowledgement of wrongdoing in the past, whether intentional or not. I was now in my adoptive daughter's life and happy, and I wanted them to take comfort from that. Moving forward, that's all that mattered. We finally pushed past the pain of years of misunderstanding and anger over several cups of tea that day. We even poured a Bailey's and drank to the future, to all our futures. I would never have imagined how a raw, emotionally charged story about adoption, my story, could change the landscape of our family's lives, but I hoped it had, it would. I guess my writing tutor and counsellor were right when they said, we all have a right to tell a story, speak our truth and be heard. Donna, thank you so much. What an extraordinary story on that story. How many more cups of tea and Saturday visits did it take before the family began to settle down into it? Did it was it okay after a while, Donna, or did it take a few weeks of visits? That was it. That yeah. was it, Patrick. I just it, it had to come to an end because you know yeah. it popped, popped up every now and again and everyone had a different version. And it was doing my head in and I just needed yeah. to tell it my way. And once that was it. It was put to bed and everybody just moved on and happy. Mm, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Because it isn't only that you had to be strong enough to tell the story. You had to be strong enough to help other people to cope with your strength telling the story. Yeah. So, you. and you're, you're poor, da. That's such a, a, you know, the sound of the toast and the kitchen smelling like a Saturday fry and then the sound of him sniffling. So yeah. necessary tears from him. But yeah, yeah, you just you describe it so skillfully and with such meaning. You're an extraordinary writer. Thank you. Mm-hmm.